Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello. I'm Michael Mead, creator of Living Myth Podcasts and Workshops, and the next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a rejuvenating creation myth for the times in which we live. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. Tune to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today we're airing a best of show revisiting recent interviews with authors from Hawaii or who wrote about events that took place in our islands. We start with Made in Hawaii. It's the latest collection of short stories by author Cedric Yamanaka. Longtime listeners may remember Yamanaka as a driving force behind Aloha Shorts, which has been featured on HBR's Airwaves. Today, we revisit our interview with Yamanaka to learn more about this homegrown author. Full disclosure, I work with him as a fellow broadcast journalist at KITV. Yeah, thanks for having me, Catherine. So uh, I'm a little old to have a, a sophomore, but it's my second book. My first book, In Good Company, was published 20 years ago. So my second book, Made in Hawaii, is just coming out. You know, it's really a celebration of our lives here in Hawaii, having had the honor to host Aloha Shorts here at Hawaii Public Radio for so long. You see so much talent, whether it's the actors, actresses, musicians, writers. And, you know, this was a way to kind of pay tribute to all the great stories that we have surrounding us, talent we have surrounding us. So some of the very stories that we performed here at Hawaii Public Radio in the Atherton have made their way into Maine in Hawaii. So hopefully folks can check it out. So, okay. Now, you and I know each other because we work together out in the field yes. as, uh, as journalists. Uh, so you had a stint, uh, gosh, for a decade and a half as our courts reporter. You also were the press secretary for uh, Governor Ben Cayetano, and you were also the communications uh, guy for a local hospital, uh, a bank, and and you're at Queens now. I mean, so I guess pe- people are probably wondering, gosh, you know, are any of the are any of the characters that you have in your stories modeled after those experiences? Yeah, I get that all the time. I think, uh, to be honest, not really. Um, because for me, and this is just me personally, I think that the experiences that I inhabit, whether it was as a journalist or in corporate communications, it takes me a while to digest all of that stuff. And at some point, I'm thinking that I'll be ready to write about whether it's the newsroom, <laughs> whether it's corporate communications. I would love to do that at some point. But right now, I'm kind of just still assimilating life as we know it in Kalihi, uh, folks growing up there, the stories we told, shared, whether it was in garages, backyards, hanging out at the beach or the basketball court, just talking story. And these were kind of the inspiration for a lot of the pieces in Made in Hawaii. And you know, we often hear, you write what you know. And you grew up in Kalihi, went to Farrington. And so you have, um, I think, you can share kind of a slice of life, you know, growing up in that community. Yeah, so the title uh, came to me because really I was born, made in Hawaii, and so were a lot of the stories. So the interesting things about the stories and how the compilation came together was really, these were stories that were published on the mainland in small literary magazines, whether it was in Michigan or California or other areas. But they had never been published here in Hawaii. And these were stories that were made in Hawaii. So I thought it'd be just great if we could compile these stories at some point, stories that had never been published in Hawaii, and kind of create like a homecoming 
So really, this is kind of a homecoming for these stories. These are stories that have never really seen the light of day here, and hopefully the folks will uh, enjoy reading them. What is it about short stories that appeal to you? I mean, uh, I loved reading short stories, you know, in high school. And, um, you know, maybe that's why I chose a career path of broadcast journalism, because you're, you have to focus and you, you have to keep people's attention, you know, because you don't have much time. I mean, there are novels that, that, that you and I enjoy and, and, you know, are on the edge of our seats and you just want to finish it, you know, like whether it's a Harry Potter book or, or, or something, you know, uh, longer like uh, War and Peace, but short stories. So, so what is it that appeals to you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I have to give credit to my old uh, college professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Ian McMillan, because I took a fiction writing class with him and kind of fell in love with the art of short stories. Uh, he was very good at it, and we would hang out in his office in Kaikendo Hall on the fourth floor and just kind of talk, and I would give him some, you know, some of my stories, and he'd kind of evaluate them. And what I noticed that he would do is that he, this was back before email. So he would be stuffing envelopes full of his stories, his short stories, and sending them out to national publications. And I, as a young college student, never even imagined having stories about Hawaii be published nationally. But I kind of watched him do this, and, and he told me, hey, now that you've got some stories published here in Hawaii, you should think about branching out and sending some of your stories and sharing it with the rest of the world. So I. Thanks to Ian, I followed in his footsteps. I got, for every story that I got published on, on, the, on the continent, I, I got 150 rejections, but that's okay. That's part of the process. And thanks to Ian, fell in love with not only writing the short stories, but having them shared with larger audiences. So love the short story. It's a little, uh, you know, it's something that you can read in, in an hour or so as opposed to a week or a month commitment. Totally respect uh, novelists and working on one myself and gaining many gray hairs because of it. But uh, yeah, I love the short story and, and really thanks to Ian for, for all of his guidance. What was it like when you got your first acceptance letter? That's, you know, that's a great question, Catherine, because I think about it every day. And really, my first acceptance letter was from Boston University, I think. I mean, that changed my life. I was, I was working at the University of Hawaii uh, as a senior, uh, and one of the folks in the office said, hey, you got a call from Boston University. I couldn't believe it, right? So I picked up the phone, and it was uh, Leslie Epstein, who was the creative uh, director of creative writing, and I believe still is at Boston University. And he said that um, he was able to offer me something called the Helen Deutsch Fellowship to attend Boston University. So as a kid from Kalihi, there was no way I would have been able to afford that. But thanks to the Helen Deutsch uh, Fellowship in Boston University, I was able to fly up there and get my education. Now, a little known fact that's kind of interesting is Helen Deutsch, I wondered who she was who had endowed this fellowship. So she was the screenwriter for a movie called National Velvet. Way back yes. in the day, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the springboard for a young actress named Elizabeth Taylor. I think it might have been her first movie. So Cedric Yamanaka and Elizabeth Taylor, not often mentioned in the same sentence, <laughs> but there is kind of a little connection there. So thanks to uh, BU for all their support, too. And so uh, actually getting uh, one of your stories published, I mean, did that happen uh, when you went to BU, or did you have something published when you were attending University of Hawaii? Yeah, so th that's taking me a, a ways back, but my first story that I ever published was here locally in a small uh, uh, newsletter magazine called Kahuliao, uh, little known magazine, and this was back in the probably the late 80s, and it was called The House on Eleva Heights. And uh, this story is, revolves around three Farrington kids growing up and trying to decide what they want to do with their lives. And so um, I wrote The House on Eleva Heights, my first story, and it won second prize in their fiction contest, got published. And 500 years later, it's actually in Made in Hawaii, the collection that's just coming out now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I recall that one of your stories, got turned into a film. 
Yeah. <laughs> I have visions of Meg's drive-in. Yes, yes. <laughs> I have been really lucky. We've actually had three stories from In Good Company, my first book made into short films by Hawaii production companies. So the first one was The Lemon Tree Billiards House, which starred a great, great cast, Ray Bumatai, James Grant Benton. And actually one of the treats was having um, Ray Bumatai come here to the Atherton and read uh, from the Lemon Tree Billiards House during Aloha Shorts. That was, that was awesome. Uh, the, second, the second one was Meg's Drive-In. It was starring Augie T, untypecast in a serious role. He did a, he did a great job. This was about a group of folks working in a drive-in restaurant, just trying to find better lives for themselves and rebelling against the ang- angry uh, management team that they had to deal with. Third one, and the last one, was uh, One Evening in the Blue Light Bar and Grill, which was a fun movie that we shot in a a bar in Chinatown. The name of the bar escapes me, but um, really a a fun piece. So really lucky. You know, when when you see these actors, actresses, and these production teams come in and take your story and adopt it to film, you know, it's kind of like being in that newsroom where you see that energy, where everybody wants to put out the best product possible. And, and, and they bring, breathe new life into these stories. And, and, and the, the way that they take these stories and make it their own is just totally awesome. One of the greatest experiences, really. Yeah, so I stand corrected. Not one of your stories, but three of your stories. Very lucky, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, gosh, you think there's that uh, possibility for one of the short stories in Made in Hawaii as well? Yeah, you know, I think uh, as as I get older, and you know, maybe it's through journalism and those years, but you start writing and you start seeing visions in your mind like a cinematographer. And so I think that uh, there's a few stories in Made in Hawaii that I think would be really fun to be uh, turned into films. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I got a I, I got a bunch. So I I think uh, if you if you look at the collection, I really like the first story, the undertow story about about um, the impact on a family uh, after uh, their their mom takes their kids on a reef walk and and loses her life in in an in an accident and how that impacted her family. So that one is kind of um, sad. Um, but then there's a fun one called Tending Bar at the Happy Parrot Restaurant about a bartender in a Chinese restaurant wearing a red tuxedo whose real dream is to become the next Jet Li. So he, he, he's working behind the bar serving up beers while in the back of his mind he thinks that he can be starring in the next big production. In comes the star of the day. Uh, the Jet Li of our time to come in, and he's hoping that that will lead to a break. And so, you know, you asked me about if there's a theme, a recurring theme in these nine or ten stories, and and there is actually, I I thought about it. The the theme is really about folks trying to make a better life for themselves. I think in about um, the majority of the stories, everyone uh, to a T involves somebody that's looking for something else, somebody that wants to uh, just add heroism and excitement and glamour to their lives, working hard to make ends meet, but still looking for that extra something. And I think you'll see that in most of those stories. Okay, Made in Hawaii, Cedric Yamanaka, in bookstores and libraries now. (laughs) Yep, go check it out, please. (laughs) All right, thanks so much, Cedric. That was a rebroadcast of our interview with author Cedric Yamanaka, whose second book, Made in Hawaii, was released earlier this year. Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR, where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Three decades ago, activists in Hawaii stepped into the global spotlight to lead the conversation about same-sex marriage. To better understand that history and its impact on LGBTQ plus rights today, the conversation Savannah Harriman Poet spoke with Sasha Eisenberg, author of The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. Here's a rebroadcast of that interview, starting with Eisenberg. So in May of 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court became the first court anywhere on earth to rule that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples. And as a result of that, the first real political conflict over same-sex marriage took place in Hawaii in the 1990s. Nobody planned for this to be the sort of defining fight over LGBT rights over the last generation, but marriage emerged in large part because of what had happened in, in Hawaii as the terrain on which the sort of big culture war issues over the place of sexual minorities in, in American society, the sort of limitations on citizenship for gays and lesbians were played out. And the, the, the reason that that became a fight over marriage rights and not a fight over non-discrimination law or hate crimes protections or any of the other areas in which lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender people have, have sought equal rights is because of a series of events that took place in Hawaii in the early 1990s that, you know, in which a very, very local personalized conflict spun wildly out of control. And within five years, what starts as a conflict within a local pride planning committee in, in Honolulu puts this issue of marriage on the desk of the president of the United States for the first time. So who gets the ball rolling? This guy named Bill Woods. Bill Woods was basically the gay rights activist in Honolulu during the 1970s and 1980s. He'd come to Hawaii from a small town in Illinois where he'd grown up. He'd come out and first lived as an openly gay man in Hawaii in the early 1970s. And he was, I think like many first generation activists in any sphere, incredibly entrepreneurial. So he started the Gay Community Center. He started Gay Community News. He started the first men's gay discussion group, the first gay radio program in, in, in Hawaii. Um, and I think like a lot of first generation activists in different spheres, he was not, he was very good at starting things and getting attention for his projects, not always great at, at working well with others or sort of building coalitions. Here's the story according to Eisenberg. Bill Woods wants to throw a parade for pride. And at the end of it, he wants to stage a huge wedding ceremony for same-sex couples. But he's not finding support from the Honolulu Pride Planning Committee. He asks the ACLU to back him up, but he doesn't get anywhere. So he ups the stakes. On December 17, 1990, he leads three couples into the Honolulu office of the Hawaii Department of Public Health to embark on this plan to request marriage licenses, which, which at that point is really, in his mind, no more of than a PR stunt. He has plans to put out a press release, get media attention. And his theory is that the ACLU might be able to say no to him, but if there are real people who are being highlighted by the local media, it'll be very difficult for an organization that has proclaimed itself committed to defending the rights of gays and lesbians to say no to them. But they do. After the public health director denies the couple's request for marriage licenses and is backed up by the state attorney general, the ACLU still doesn't want to get involved. It seems like Woods has hit a dead end, until local civil rights attorney Dan Foley agrees to take up the case. He was basically the entirety of the civil rights bar in, in, in Honolulu at the time. Not a, not a gay man, but somebody who had done a few significant cases related to gay rights issues or LGBT issues and um, was incredibly sympathetic to, to their cause. And in May of 1991, Foley files this, by his own acknowledgement, long shot lawsuit to challenge the discrimination against these couples under the Hawaii Constitution. Two years later, in May of 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled in favor of the three couples and declared that Hawaii's prohibition of same-sex marriage violated the state constitution. That decision launched a national conversation, as well as prompted widespread backlash both in and outside of the islands. You can read all about it in Eisenberg's book, The Engagement. 
And at the core of the conversation was this one issue, marriage. The quest for marriage rights basically came out of nowhere. When this story starts in 1990, there's not a gay rights organization in the United States that has endorsed marriage equality as an objective. There is not an active court case. There hasn't been one for 15 years in the United States that's trying to secure marriage rights. There's barely a politician in the United States that's been asked his or her opinion on this. It is not an issue in any way. You know, gays and lesbians are fighting for sort of full citizenship on a, on a number of fronts. I could say it comes out of nowhere, but it comes out of a very local place in, in Hawaii. And you know, five years later is before the president of the United States, a little over 20 years later is before the Supreme Court of the United States. And within 25 years of this, a few people fighting on a pride planning committee, the Supreme Court is, is making marriage equality the law of the land. And for many people, marriage equality is still the defining feature of the LGBTQ movement. But does that really capture the contemporary concerns of the community? I spoke with Ian Tapu, a UH Law School graduate who specialized in Native Hawaiian law. He's also on the board of directors for the Hawaii LGBT Legacy Foundation, which organizes Honolulu's Pride events. Hawaii has been at the forefront uh, of a lot of movements, especially when it comes to LGBT movements. And the first I think about is same-sex marriage. And, you know, we really had a very progressive judiciary. We have a very progressive community. Um, and I think it really helped to start the domino effect of realizing that gay marriage is something that everyone or just marriage in general is something that everyone should have the right to. Um, and I think what's really happening today is that we've kind of cultivated the leadership from our activists, you know, a decade, two decades ago, and we're implanting those same kind of movement processes in how we advocate for trans folks or mahu folks or advocating for adoption or foster care. So I, I think the movement is very transferable. I feel like what has happened in the same-sex marriage arena has really um, catapulted us in ways that we're trying to affirm others, not just gay marriage. You know, Hawaii has the highest percentage population-wise of transgender individuals. And so I think really moving forward, I oftentimes people think of um, queer movements as only being about same-sex marriage, but there are so many other issues, um, and that includes advocacy in the health sphere, that includes advocacy for our youth, um, and that especially includes advocacy for our transgender folks. I think just from my role on the board for the foundation, for the Legacy Foundation, I, I find that sometimes groups operate in, in silos, and I feel like People are always having to reinvent the bridge to connect our groups together. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's because there's a generational gap. Oftentimes, movements come and go depending on who's leading it. And I think that's to say that those who, have, for example, advocated for gay marriage were transplants, which I think is separate from the group who's advocating for Mahu or the group who are advocating for homeless youth. I feel like there are sometimes disconnect which can, can get problematic because I think, you know, burnout is real. People are doing twice the work that they need to, not realizing that someone else is also doing similar work. Um, so I, I feel like so much of the legacy's role is making sure we connect folks to others who are doing similar work or who are just as passionate and want to be allies. Over the course of the year, the Legacy Foundation has held a series of town hall meetings to address the range of issues facing the LGBTQ community. I asked Eisenberg what activists can learn from Hawaii's history with marriage equality as they seek to tackle other challenges. This is pretty instructive that we are not necessarily stuck with the issues that are before us now. Um, this was totally unimaginable as a political issue in the 1980s, that, that there be an active fight to change the laws of the country so that that two men or two women could marry. Um, and in a very compressed period of time, it became a real thing that the political class had to deal with. And it was not initiated by politicians. It was not initiated by interest groups. It was not initiated by big donors or people that we think of as having the, the ability to set the agenda in American politics now. 
It was local activists, real people. It introduced a whole new issue and ultimately a, one that, that delivered a real expansion of, of our idea of equality in the United States. And, and I think that that is something that should, should sort of give sucker to people who are hoping to, to see change in this country. We're not stuck with the issues that are in front of us today. And if things go the right way five years, 10 years from now, we could be looking at a whole bunch of different policy choices if, if, if things go right. That was a rebroadcast of an interview HPR Savannah Harriman Pote did with Sasha Eisenberg, author of the book The Engagement America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same Sex Marriage. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. This week on Science Friday, reflecting on how viruses have touched our lives. The virus, our body, and biomedicine make meaning together. Plus why NASA is going back to boots on the moon. It's like having a library about the history of the universe right next door. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. We continue with our Goodreads Hanaho show, showcasing recent interviews with local book authors. Coming up later, we talk to the author of a children's book about an octopus that gets fed up with living amongst trash. Right now, let's get to a book about the Valley Isle. Water rights have been a source of contention across Hawaii since the days of sugar plantations. The battle has been fought most notably in West Maui. Since the demise of the sugar industry in our state, those landowners have continued to file for permits to retain the ability to divert water from West Maui streams. In response, several local groups have filed lawsuits in an effort to get the state to restore that water to the streams and their ecosystems. The book Water and Power in West Maui details the history of the battle over water rights on the Valley Isle. Here's a rebroadcast of the interview the conversations Russell Subiano did with the authors Bianca Isaki and Jonathan Schur. Where does your passion for the issue come from and why was it important for you to write the book? I guess I turned my passion more around like social justice. I, uh, I wrote my dissertation about like settler colonialism in Hawaii, the role of Asian settlers. And from all of this academic work, I came into a lot of legal work where I do a lot of litigation, public interest litigation for communities. And writing the book was actually, it was both because, well, I was familiar with the issues because I've been working with these communities, which was good and bad because on one hand, it's like, I know the issues. On the other hand, it's like, I have, you know, because of you know, legal requirements, you don't want to divulge too much. The book was actually, it was commissioned by um, North Beach West Maui Community Fund. And so they, and I don't know if Jonathan knows this, Jonathan gave a talk at a a Hawaiian environmental issues conference that we put together in Lahaina that was with Kamukukapu Naakane O Maui Cultural Center. Jonathan gave a very impressive talk and a lot of people from North Beach Board were there and they were like, wow, he knows so much about water, about, he knows about how they drop seedlings down in West Maui Mountains. Like, we got to get this guy to write a book. And then Jonathan, for some reason, was like, well, Bianca helps me with other things. <laughs> so I was writing on the coattails there. I didn't know that story. My passion for 
the issue of water management in Hawaii ultimately comes to wanting to be hopeful in a life that, you know, despite the tremendous blessings of living in Hawaii, the, the good fortune that we didn't choose to be born here, those of us who were born here, those who have gotten to move here, there's a lot that's very tough in Hawaii right now, from impending climate crises to the struggle over the basic needs of life, including housing, shelter, food. What I have seen in communities across Hawaii, including in West Maui, is this incredibly sophisticated ability at the grassroots level for people to come together to have really hard conversations across across difference, meaning like, I mean, Terraform is sitting down with like incredibly wealthy second homeowners and actually coming to some difficult but shared understandings of what it means to be in this community and what each side might need to do to be able to figure out a better future for that area first and then for the people who live there. So despite the headlines that note accurately that some water struggles take decades to resolve in Hawaii, in water management, we have managed to create outcomes that have left Hawaii and our communities better off. And that's ultimately the thing that drives my passion about this work, my desire to talk story with communities about it, and my, my honor to get to work in communities in West Maui and across Hawaii on these issues. I really connected with the historical aspect of the book. And you start the book out by laying a foundation through the details of a legal case in 1895, Corner v. Kumuli'ili'i, some of the struggles that we see in West Maui today in 2021 do indeed tie all the way back to issues that were litigated during Horner versus Kumuli'i, the case in the 1890s, where the owners of Pioneer Mill sued Native Hawaiians. And in a way that echoes today's struggles of sometimes we have foreigners complain that Hawaiians aren't showing enough aloha to outsiders, the plantation owners sued Native Hawaiian collar growers for having violated traditional and customary water management techniques. But it really came down to what the plantation was insisting the traditional and customary technique was versus what the ongoing landowners and collar farmers in that area continued to know was the way in which water was historically managed. So we start the book with a discussion of Horner Kumu versus Kumuli'ili for a few reasons. One is because it's an incredibly fascinating and un, often untold story of post-overthrow Native Hawaiian resistance yeah. to outside control. It's a good example of they won the case, but in many ways lost the battle. While Horner lost the case, we know from having looked at the development of Pioneer Mill in the 20s, 30s, all the way up through the 70s, that they eventually did control vast areas of West Maui. And many of those historic holdings ended up in their hands, or at least partially so. But also today in the area, including in areas historically farmed near Pioneer Mill, including Kaua'ula Valley and other areas, there continues to be Native Hawaiians farming taro, reasserting land ownership rights and water rights, some of whom turn to that case in particular, not just as legal foundation, but also inspiration for their continued existence and, and thriving. In the book, you spend a couple of chapters examining the state's role in protecting our surface water. Do you feel like they've done their job or do they need to do more? The state has done in the last few years a much better job at trying to manage surf water, surface water effectively in West Maui and other areas of the state than it has for the previous three decades. So they deserve some kudos. They, on their own, rather than having communities having to come to them, have suggested returning water to streams from historic diversions um, for calculating how much water is needed at a minimum for there to be Malkadamkai flow of surface water for Oopu and Opai and Hihibai, as well as sufficient water for other what are called in-stream uses of water, whether it's kalo growing or recreational uses or other uses of water. So recently the state has done far better, the State Commission on Water Resources Management, far better than had been the case for decades previously. With that said, 
everybody always has room for improvement and there are no exception. One of the things that this community has talked about and other communities have talked about and we mentioned in the book is that we would hope that the standards that the state sets for how our resources should look should move beyond the mindset of looking at the minimum amounts needed to what kind of restoration of resources we could have so that our ecosystems and our communities are thriving, are abundant. For those of us in our generation, the, the three of us in this conversation, we honestly have no idea of how abundant Hawaii used to be. You know, one tiny indication, and this was research Kepa Mali did in West Maui and across Hawaii by looking at Mahele awards and Mahele claims, people who are claiming their kuleana rights during the Mahele, the number one across the Hawaiian Islands, the number one resource that was often claimed in Mahele awards, our people said we use in our community was harvesting o'opu, these freshwater fish as like a major protein source all across Hawaii. And now, like I was, I was in my 50s before I tasted my first o'opu. Many of us don't even know what it is. Yeah, I've never had it before. And I only know it from the reference in that Olamana song. Um, it's actually, it's like super tasty. <laughs> Very oily. I think that where the state falls down in terms of trying to manage water resources, and, you know, I work with a lot of state agencies, as Jonathan said, the water commission is by far much better than many of the county agencies and other people. But I think, well, this isn't just with the, uh, with the state, but it's like, yeah, well, a lot of government approaches to to protecting Hawaiian traditional customary rights. It's like they are property interests and that's legally how you get it in there. But if you look at it from a cultural perspective and all the people we talk to do, the, the problem isn't that they are consumers that you know need to you know need to take certain things like they take the water, they take the um, you know um, they, they take whatever to to do their practices. The, the, issue is actually that the tradition is protection. The tradition is management. The tradition is also governance. And so that, um, so the premise that, um, that the state is protecting these traditions, it butts up against that a lot, especially when it comes to water, because, and, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard like Kanavai, like water law or like law is like identified with like the ways water is managed. And because of that inherent contradiction, it, it doesn't mean that people don't work over it because you know, I've definitely worked with communities who are like, okay, this is how the public process work. We're gonna do this and we'll get people out. This is the arguments that, you know, um, this is how it works for us to make these arguments to protect it. And, you know, they, but in all of this, they always see themselves as like, as enacting a tradition of protection or enacting a tradition that makes them who they are. I, and, and I think that gets missed sometimes. Jonathan, going back to groundwater, can you talk a little bit more about the difference between surface water and groundwater? So ground and surface water are managed differently in Hawaii, even though they are often hydrologically connected, you know, stream water sometimes sinks into the ground, springs come up out of the ground, but the state manages surface water and groundwater as if they were separated. Surface water is managed by setting in-stream flow standards, how much water should remain in the stream before water can be taken out for economic uses. Groundwater, this, what the state does, and it, this is a major concern, the state sets so-called sustainable yields, which they say in a given area, a given aquifer system, how much groundwater can be withdrawn from the ground, from wells, um, now and in the future. And the state generally says, we're not going to closely manage a system until that pumping number reaches 90% or more of what we set of the sustainable yield. The book goes into some great detail on how this system is so overly simplified as to be dangerous to our future, not just in West Maui, but across Hawaii. I know a settlement was recently reached in the 20-year battle over water rights at Navai Eha on Maui. What are your hopes for the future of water rights on Maui? What I hope for water rights is that there doesn't that it doesn't have to be a struggle, that it can be something that's managed and not managed in a way under the framework that the state does currently, where it's based on like a not a kind of shady calculus of relying on the past to predict how much of 
available in the future. So my, my hope is that the rights that exist make sense and are enforced in a way that where the decision makers aren't interpreting it as like, we have a water bank and we're going to we're going to dole out every dollar when like, you know, the bank is kind of fictitious, not forward looking. And, and if, if you do spend all your, your last penny out of that bank is actually, it is the land that's going to suffer. What is my hope for West Maui's water future? Even though it's, it's small and partial and still contested, I am very pleased that some resolution has been found in, in Navaiha, part of West Maui. So I guess I I turn to two quotes, two of my favorite water and land battle quotes that I've learned over the years. Um, One from Windward Oahu, Uncle Calho, whoever controls the water controls the future. And one from Haunani Apoliona when she was chair of OHA, let the past not be a trap, but let it be a liberation. My hope for West Maui is that the state and the county and those who have greater resources will work with, encourage, and have meaningful discussions and dialogues with communities across Hawaii to build up our collective capacity to manage what could be a truly abundant and beautiful future for water in West Maui and across Hawaii, rather than one of the last century of mistrust, struggle, and decline of our resources. That was a rebroadcast of an interview HPR's Russell Subiono did with Jonathan Shore and Bianca Isaki, co-authors of the book Water and Power in West Maui. on-demand world and HPR is here for you wherever and whenever you want to listen get the best of our local talk shows in podcast form you can have the conversation by Mark's Cafe the body show and more delivered right to your phone or device as soon as they're released plus subscribe to features like Manu Minute and off the road with Dave Lawrence for the full list just head to our website hawaiipublicradio.org often make good gifts. So if you're looking for one to share with the young person, we're highlighting one written by an author from Molokai. Lavinia Courier lives on the Friendly Isle and decided she had to do something after watching the plastic debris build up over the years on the beaches of her island home. It's called No More Plastic in the Ocean. It's a charming little story about an octopus who got fed up with living with rubbish. Here's a rebroadcast of our interview with Courier, who explains how the children's book came to be. Well, it it came to be, Catherine, just because walking on the beach in Molokai, as time went on, especially in the last 10 years, I began to see more and more plastic and fewer and fewer shells. And then with children, I, they saw me picking up plastic and they started bringing me pieces of plastic. And I thought, oh dear, do we really want our children to be spending their time picking up our rubbish from you know, the, the ruins of our, our time? And I thought, have to do something about this. And so we organized cleanups with sustainable coastlines and Surfrider and Nature Conservancy. And where we live on the East End, we did quite extensive cleanups. And then I thought, well, we need to talk to children about this. And what better way to talk to children than through children's books and images and friendly images of the animals in the ocean, the marine animals, and what they feel about this having all this rubbish being thrown into their water. So that's how it came about. 
I thought it was such an adorable story, you know, and I'm going to read from the book here. Aloha, I am he'e. I live on the ocean floor, but it's no fun here for my friends and me anymore. Plenty plastic opala every day. People dump it in the water and flush it out the pipes. It chokes us, tangles, breaks and mangles, and never goes away. And the pictures are, are fabulous, you know. <laughs> Talk about your artist. So Molly Ginther was working on, on Molokai when I met her and actually gardening, but she works often. Um, she goes to Palmyra. She loves the ocean. And she did two other books which were about water. One was about the color blue getting over everything in the world in a kind of watery way. And then she did a book about an Alaska fisherwoman, Alaska fishing boat that was was captained by a mother and her daughter. Both were, were lovely, and she's just so talented. And she sent these pictures in from Palmyra, which was oh. amazing because the, there was no plane and no paper, and the paper, when she got it, turned into mush because it was so humid. So it was kind of... Um, amazing that she managed to do this project from Palmyra very, very quickly. Well, I love how the little octopus, you know, just, you know, has it in his brain that we got to do something because their ocean home is just being trashed. And I love the concept of them stringing up lay of plastic and then having the birds distributed on land. And we tried as much as possible to show that the animals have an intention and they're trying to help people understand what the effect of all this is. And children, of course, trust animals and they trust nature, I think, implicitly. So um, it's a difficult thing because when you're talking about a serious subject, you don't want children to be scared or feel overly responsible, but you want them to be aware and and in a friendly way um, be on the lookout. In your book, there's a line, if there is no ocean, there is no us, Mm. right? So we have to malama the waters and malama our home. And I love how you work those Hawaiian values into the story. Well, I think the Hawaiian values are more relevant than ever. And I think on islands, we feel these things faster and more dramatically than, than the mainland feels them because we see the rubbish coming from Asia and our own rubbish and... I think we're very connected to the ocean, and people on Molokai gain a lot of their protein from the ocean, and they know that if the ocean dies, they die. So it's it's real to us, I think, on the islands in a way that perhaps people in the mainland don't don't feel it. So, what type of plastics are you seeing wash up on uh, uh, on the beaches there? A lot of fishing boat plastic, huge nets. One net in Halava Valley, so big. The Nature Conservancy had to wait for an industrial helicopter to come and lift it, even when it was cut into pieces. It was like a mountain of plastic net and a lot of crates and and, um, fishing rubbish. Also, we see, you know, toothbrushes and toys and um, people's plastic bottles and so on. But I think the main weight of it is um, fishing plastic. And on the North Shore, there's tons of it that still is not collected because of the difficulty of getting there. But there is an effort once a year to pick up the rubbish and have it helicoptered out. But we really need to get to the source of it, stop it from being dumped. Right, and and not use maybe so much plastic. Right, yep. And I've seen on a lot of the beaches here on Oahu uh, tiny bits of, of plastic just, that's just been broken down, and that's really spooky because you think it's you know, sand and, and, and pebbles, and it's not. That's extraordinary, Catherine. There's so much microplastic, both in freshwater and on the beach, that they've even found it in the amniotic fluid of, of pregnant women, which is really extraordinary. It's everywhere. And for animals, I think the microplastic is more dangerous than the big plastic, even though the turtles do get stuck in plastic the way that Molly illustrated the, 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 the book. But um, I think the microplastic, in a way, is more dangerous for them because they ingest it it's in their tissues. I think what, what we wanted to convey in, in this book is that there's still time to turn this around. As you say, we have to stop it at its source and we have to take responsibility of our own environment. But there is time still to make it beautiful again. And I think that's what we really wanted to convey, that there's hope. Well, um, on the final page of your book... 
you know, you actually list a lot of the groups that are active on this plastics issue. There are wonderful groups on all the, on each island, and there are people making so much effort to the Malama, and, and it really is having an effect. But on some of the coastlines, such as the north shore of Molokai, it requires government help and big helicopters and boats to have an impact. It's not always that you could just go on a beach and and pick things up. But I think many people are aware of this problem and trying their best to do something. There's also a bill in the U.S. Congress right now called Break Free from Plastics that's languishing, but people should know that they should write their congresspeople and have that passed so that we can do something at the source. Recently, we did a thing with an artist who was trying to draw awareness to this problem of uh, plastic pollution in the ocean. And she did an art piece up at the University of Hawaii at Manoa out of marine debris collected on these, you know, trips, whether it's 808 or Surf Rider, Sustainable Coastlines, all these groups. But yeah, just lots of people out there who just feel passionate about keeping our oceans clean and and trying to, uh, you know, draw attention to this, uh, to the plight of our marine life. And I think many children will appreciate it if, if they don't have to be garbage pickers as they grow up. And, or become so accustomed to it that they won't even know what a pristine beach looked like. Well, so your book is out now. Where can people buy it? So they can buy it at Beautiful Books, Namea, um, and they can buy it from Mutual Publishing in Kaimuki. I think the store is open online and also from the store at Puahuku on Molokai. I am hoping that we'll have a copy in all the libraries there you go. so that children can take it out for free. That was a rebroadcast of our interview with Molokai Slovenia Courier, author of the book No More Plastic in the Ocean, published by Mutual. that wraps it up for us today. Join us on Monday for the start of our week-long series on sleep. Among the topics, we'll look into how sleep affects college students and affects our immune system. You won't want to miss it. Got some feedback, maybe some thoughts on the books that we shared? Or do you know an author who has a book coming out soon? Share your comments or questions about what you've heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can email us too at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on the Hawaii Public Radio Facebook page. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. Our intern is Emily Tong. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.